We're often critical of media on this podcast, um, and that's whether it's their coverage of politics, police, black issues, or the Oscars. They never can really seem to get it right. So this might be because they're so hostile to black employees that there aren't really many left in their newsrooms or many to begin with. It could be because they are solely owned by hedge funds and corporations that are also slowly destroying our society and planet um, or owned by the government whose existence rests on the continuous colonization of this land. So whatever the reason, uh, we wanted to take this episode to go through some of the recent failures of media in Edmonton, both traditional and independent media um, that are kind of in a position where they're supposed to represent the people, um, keep power in check and find the truth. Um, all these things, you know, supposedly. Um, so we're going to be talking a bit about their coverage of the school resource officer program. Um, a recent controversy with Edmonton's own Prince of Podcasting um, and some problematic efforts by the CBC to cover and represent black life and culture in Alberta. So we're seeing new research that has been compiled by friend of the show, Bashir Mohammed and Alex DaCosta on the SRO project in Edmonton. Um, so school resource officers, um, basically um, were exposed um, using data that we've never had access to. Um, and that mainly shows that students in Edmonton had 2,068 criminal charges handed down to them by SROs. Uh, 679 students were expelled with SRO involvement. 5,228 students were suspended with SRO involvement. And 2,963 students were labeled as offenders. So this is the first time that we've kind of seen any of this information or this data being placed in a centralized way. Um, and it's important also to remind listeners that this is being done by um, two independent, um, I guess, like writers, um, but really people who are doing this on their spare time. They weren't commissioned to do this by anyone. They weren't given funding to do this. Um, and I think understanding that in the context of, you know, realizing that we we do have people who we give funding to we do have people who we trust to do this kind of work um, but it's not necessarily being done by them just to jump in here from the editing booth i wanted to mention that bashir actually tried to foip the edmonton police service in 2019 to access the data that was released for the sro program uh, but was actually quoted to pay sixty four thousand dollars to access that foip information and uh, it's not clear from uh, this data that was released if he actually did pay for this uh, data, like I mentioned, or if there was another means to, to get access to it. But um, obviously, $64,000 is a huge deterrent for a civilian, a private person to do independent research. When again, we mentioned that um, we've had state-funded media, we have privately owned um, media funded by advertising that have all been able to um, essentially investigate these things, but have never done so in all the decades that the SRO program has existed in Edmonton. Um, so if you want to find more um, information about that project, you can visit their website at www.sroresearchproject.ca. So we actually covered the uh, issue of SROs back in fall of 2020 
um, when we released, I think it was the third episode of our podcast, um, where we talked to a teacher who was uh, positioned in a school that had a um, particularly bad SRO. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, there are, um, there's a distinction between, you know, good or bad. I think ultimately, um, the like presence of, you know, officers in the school will, will continue to incentivize, um, this criminalization, which is ultimately the negative thing. Um, but, you know, we heard stories of sexual assault, of harassment, um, of, you know, students being targeted, people feeling unsafe. Um, and all of this being done um, by a teacher anonymously because there's still a fear of um, being punished because there isn't a lot of control um, of the SRO program by teachers. A lot of it is done um, in a very top-down way from administration who you know are able to weaponize and utilize um, SROs or you know the tools that police have in order to crack down um, on students in a more punitive way. At that time, too, um, we also saw media coverage of the program. But, you know, we saw and we noticed that it was particularly soft um, on the police and on the school board um, when it was happening. So we saw a suspension of the program in 2020, um, even though it continued in a more sinister way, arguably, um, under the Youth Enhanced Deployment Program. Um, that was enough basically to convince the media and allies that the issue was gone. So we didn't necessarily need to see any more coverage um, or any more analysis um, of this program. Um, and even on this podcast, I would say that we were, you know, a little bit too quick to interpret the suspension of the program as a win, ultimately. I just want to give a few more examples of how the media in Edmonton have been complicit or outright supported the SRO program over the years. To start off this article from September 23rd, 2014, and the headline reads, Edmonton's School Resource Officers Win Model Agency Award. So essentially, this article was completely written up uh, because the Edmonton police received an award for their SRO program uh, by, get this, the National Association of School Resource Officers, an association based in um, the world's hottest destination for policing, United States of America. Um, so this award was given and uh, essentially uh, cited Edmonton School Resource Officers as the Model Agency Award um, for specialized training they developed, as well as the strong relationship resource officers have with the school communities they have. It's really it's a real puff piece um, that quotes the police, that um, quotes the uh, public school superintendents, and that essentially highlights all the amazing things that are being accomplished um, by the SRO program. The same program that we already know has criminalized um, thousands of students over the years. The next article that we're going to talk about a little bit is this article by uh, CTV that was published after we saw a broader questioning about the SRO program. And the headline for this one is Police Association Makes Case for SROs to Return to Public Schools. So we're really giving the Police Association and Michael Elliott, who's the president, this like outsized platform uh, just to make the case for why their program should return. So I don't know if this kind of treatment is like doled out for, for everyone in public when their services get cut, but police gets a whole article essentially saying that because a grade 10 student was assaulted in November of 2020, essentially that was evidence for school resource officers to um, be 
put back into campuses. Um, so there's quotes from the uh, Sergeant Michael Elliott, quote, luckily this case was a Catholic school um, and there was an SRO present, essentially uh, making the case for, yeah, why we need to criminalize students, how these incidences um, can only be solved by uh, police officers, yeah, continuing with various scare tactics, um, talking about guns, talking about drug dealers at school, um, talking about, you know, stolen property. And again, doing all of this through uh, the media. So when we say that the media is complicit, when we say that um, the media is outwardly supportive of things like the SRO program, doesn't question it. These two articles are, you know, what we're talking about. Speaking uh, about punitive crackdowns based on narratives of fear, um, an inherent criminality of certain groups. Um, I think we're going to talk a little bit more on this episode too about a CBC documentary um, that touches on um, these narratives that fit within the criminalization of students with the SRO program, but ultimately that serve to benefit elites um, in their um, concentration of power over the rest of our lives. So yeah, we're going to talk a bit about that in the rest of the podcast. So failures in media aren't limited to institutional, um, traditional media. Um, I think we definitely see that in independent media. And especially in the last couple of weeks, we've seen an example locally that I think shows how um, a lot of the, I guess, negative, toxic attitudes and behaviors um, that are perpetuated and live in these kind of traditional newsrooms can definitely be downloaded onto um, this kind of independent media space that I think really prides itself in being very different or offering something different, um, not only for the people who are working in the industry, but also for like listeners in the audience. Um, but it can often just like perpetuate like the same um, awful things that we find um, in kind of, like I said, traditional kind of mainstream uh, spaces. So the, the story I think that's like a really perfect example of that um, in Edmonton has been, um, uh, yeah, and I hate to use this term, but I have to, the story with like the Prince of Podcasting, Ryan Jesperson um, and his uh, producer, Sarah Hoyles, who um, was on his show um, when this conversation about Kim Kardashian um, came up and this uh, back and forth kind of started where Jesperson um, was, you know, very clearly uh, very sexist, very condescending in his um, way of cutting off uh, his producer, Sarah, um, interrupting her whenever she was trying to speak. Um, and then also siding with this um, strange character, uh, Captain Kobe, who, um, you know, was calling his producer racist against white men because of her critiques about sexism um, that was, you know, pretty blatant and pretty obvious. So I mentioned Kim Kardashian and this mysterious character called Captain Kobe. So you don't really need to know much about these people uh, to understand the situation with Ryan Jesperson. But um, yeah, we're going to play a clip right here that really makes you understand what's going on when we say, um, you know, Ryan was acting uh, in a very sexist way, in a very domineering way. Here's the thing. You know what? You know what a, a, a down home example is, is Captain Kobe that we had on the show a Perfect. couple, a couple of weeks ago. Don't get right? me started, oh, no, dude. No, hey, it's enough. Uh, I, I, I don't mean it's enough, Sarah Hoyles. I'm not saying that. Let me be clear. Oh. I'm saying my point is my point is Captain Kobe. And He's, the thing he with actually, Captain Kobe, he re-emphasizes what my point is. Yeah, sure. But you know what? Lots of people give a fuck about what he has to say. 
And so that's that people's interest. People are like, why are you making certain people famous? That's because that's who those people want to listen to. He's already and if, famous. And if you don't like it, then that's fine. And I get what Sarah's saying right now. Like, stop making stupid people famous. But at the same time, I like the fact that the average person can just climb out from the rubble and become a social media icon or even a millionaire in this day and age. Yeah. But and she I, hasn't climbed out from the rumble. Stop. I'm not talking about her. He's I'm saying in general. Her. Like we're talking about Captain Kobe. We're talking about other people. But he also has, if we're talking Captain Kobe, he is a white male, which automatically gives him So what people, do you want him to do, Sarah? I'm saying that there is not an equal playing field. To but what do you want him to do? The fact that he's talking about that he wants to go and talk to indigenous people. Um, great. But the point is, it's not about going and giving your mic to someone else. It's about getting the fuck out of the way <laughs> and letting people speak for themselves and take, stop taking up airtime. He's not taking up airtime. He, he is his own guy. And he goes, it's always been my dream. This is He said it on our show. People can go back and listen to the interview. He goes, it's always been my dream. He goes, I want to go across the country on a motorcycle and talk to people and tell people stories. And he goes, including First Nations people, including Indigenous people. And then all of a sudden, the left starts to pile on him and say, oh, yeah, no, oh, a white guy is going gonna, is gonna to co-opt the culture. 100%. And 100%, Sarah, you know it. He said, I don't and, know it. And so, so the biggest mistake that Captain Kobe made was acknowledging that he wanted to include indigenous people in the conversations he had because the because people started lighting their hair on fire. So the better thing he would have done, what everybody would have preferred, right? All the Stacys, what everybody would have preferred wow. is if Captain Kobe is if Captain Kobe would have just 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 ignored indigenous people altogether and said, "I'm just going to ride my motorcycle across the country and just and, and but I'm not going to talk to any indigenous people." And I, then and then all of the Stacys online would be would would be more satisfied. We should not be diminishing people and referring to them as Stacys. No, I'm specifically talking about someone called Stacy. By the way, this is the most real talk we've had in a long time. I'm in the middle. I know some here. people are pissed off about this. This is real talk. I love this. Show me one example of Captain Kobe speaking on behalf of indigenous people. That's why are you defending him so? So I'm not defending Captain Kobe. What I'm defending is this cancel culture. Not that, cancel uh, culture. Yes, it, of oh my gosh, of stop. course it is. You, you, you are going from to extremes. It's people talking to me about, I don't know cancel culture. Like, do you fucking forget my story? Like, do, I don't know cancel culture. Are you fucking kidding me? I have firsthand experience what it's like. And I've encountered the same crew on social media. Is the assertion that that basically, if, if you've got a beard and you're white, you should just shut the fuck up, shut down your social media, shut the fuck up? Because that's the impression I get. First, we wanted to address uh, the wrap up about the final 15, 17 minutes of yesterday's show. And we had this sort of talk radio moment where our team, in particular me, and our editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles, really got into it. And it was a situation where I think both of us were uncomfortable at the time as we talked about it after. And Sarah will share it in her words in just a second. But after our show, we went, whoo. And we all kind of took a deep breath and went, well, that doesn't happen every day. And my first inclination was that this was a huge success. It wasn't okay. Having heated, heated conversations, I'm all for. Going toe-to-toe, I am all for not agreeing i am all for but being steamrolled um having people try to explain what i was saying <laughs> back to me being interrupted repeatedly not being able to say a sentence without it being cut off that's not okay 
and then to be said that I'm racist because I'm discriminating against all white men with beards is ludicrous. And that just goes to show that people don't get it. They don't get what it means. I have privilege. You have privilege. Different levels of privilege. Different kinds of privilege. But also, Sarah, like one of the most important things I've learned to do in my career, and yesterday was a good reminder too, is to take important points that people make, right? To, to seek out different perspectives. Everybody knows you do. You booked Sapria Devetti and Brian Lilly for the same round table today. Like that's different perspectives. You're not afraid of different perspectives. And at the same time, every once in a while, you got to just forget about the comments. It's not real life. And in so many ways, as a lot of people yesterday were telling me to fuck off and die, people calling you a racist, it's the same ball of wax. And that's the stuff like it's, it's easier said than done, I think, for us to say, just shake it off or just ignore the comments, right? If someone's calling you a racist. But at the same time, in real life, you know where your heart's at. I know where your heart's at. I know what drives your passion. I've seen the editorial process. There's a reason why I said this to people yesterday. There's a reason why you are hired to be the producer of this show. I hired you because of what you bring to the table, because of your skill set, and because the show is better because of your contribution. This is real life, man. This is real stuff. I have just been messaged by Captain Kobe. He put it on Instagram, uh, on Twitter saying, I see everyone on here defending Sarah, but you all seen her being racist towards all white men with beards, right? I need you to call him out, Ryan. I need you to call him out. He's dangerous. He's targeting me. And he's, this is inaccurate, unfair, and a smear. And I need you to call him out. Yeah. Um, well, this is this is exactly what the problem is when women stand up and ask to be heard and say things that are hard for white men to hear. This is what comes back at them. And he's dangerous because he has such a platform, which we helped to create. OK, so let's let me. This is why I was dangerous. To, I was scared to come on today because I, I need you to stand up. Like what's what's the specific message? What 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 do you specifically want to say? With regards to me calling him out, I don't have background here. I, I, obviously, I just read it to you, Ryan. Okay, I just okay, read okay, it to okay. you. Okay, so yeah. So I mean, I'm just seeing it. I haven't had a chance to formulate my thoughts. But but what's the message? Like, what, what do you, what's the most important message you want people focusing on right now? What do you want people to hear right now? You have the platform. He listens to you. This is white privileged males. Yeah. That will only listen to each other. No, but I want you to feel supported right now. And I'm standing here. So that's here, why I'm yeah. asking you. But so tell when, him so it's wrong. Tell him that you're not a racist. I, we, 20 minutes tell ago him. we talked about that. I said that specific. I, I, I want to be clear. I'm understanding. Say Kobe, Captain Kobe. Yeah. Knock it off. Yeah. Stop. Stop. Sarah, I want to be Please, clear. Ryan, you have, you have my it. full, you have my full support right now. Say I'm, it to Kobe. Okay, okay. Just hang on a second. We're having a conversation. There's a lot of nuance to this conversation. In this circumstance, clearly, the way that Kobe's messaging is making you feel no. is absolutely that is not. You can't say I'm sorry that he's making you no, feel no, no, that no. way. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying, Sarah. That's just what you said, Sarah. I'm saying clearly it indicates that. Okay, all right. Well, this, I mean, this is real for sure, obviously. 
um, Kobe, you can see the impact that this is having. I don't have the background here. Um, obviously, didn't expect this to happen. Um, I don't have the Kobe. I don't. I don't know what was said except for that. Calling Sarah racist is completely off base, and um, you know, walk it back, Kobe, please. Um, and uh, with regards to everybody else, um, you know, I mean, this is an unprecedented circumstance for me as a host. You can let me know what you think right now, and um, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm doing my best to to show my support for my teammate here and for my colleague Sarah Hoyles. Um, we're just going to hard transition into a conversation. So as you can see um, during that clip, uh, Ryan's producer, Sarah, was, um, you know, very uh, clearly asking him to denounce this person, Captain Kobe, who was calling her racist, um, really undermining her um, her claims that, you know, the situation was very sexist towards her. Um, and, you know, all of this kind of went over Ryan Jesperson's head. Um, and not only that, but that he continuously um, interrupts uh, Sarah, um, you know, really brushes off any accusations of sexism. And yeah, it kind of treats the whole situation like, you know, it's this very light disagreement. Um, and, you know, really going back to his uh, preferred term, uh, real talk. Um, and, you know, even after his producer walks off the set um, and very clearly um, unhappy with the situation, um, he's still, you know, pretty nonchalant about everything, reading ads, um, you know, talking about how this is a positive thing. And so I think this like really shows how, you know, these kind of attitudes that are very negative and toxic in mainstream newsrooms and in mainstream environments can can very easily be carried over and, and perpetuated in an independent space um, and how, you know, just having this independent label or, you know, choosing to go down this path doesn't necessarily uh, preclude you from um, experiencing these kind of things. And I can speak on this um, for myself personally, um, as I transitioned from a more mainstream traditional newsroom um, into a more independent media and a startup environment. Um, as my first kind of media job, um, I definitely witnessed like a lot of um, really toxic behavior, a lot of things that I didn't expect to see, um, you know, from my old kind of environments, um, because, you know, you're always promised when you're in a kind of independent or startup environment that things are going to be done differently, that, you know, culture or, you know, people are treated differently. But yeah, I think ultimately a lot of that is lip service. Um, and yeah, I think it, it just reflects how a lot of these things are, are really carried over. Even on this show, when we were doing our first season, um, I was coming off a string of very toxic experiences in tr both traditional and this kind of startup uh, media environment. Um, and I think dealing with those situations and having them spill over into a new project that I think was trying to do something entirely different than um, what was happening at those places, um, I think ultimately um, really soured um, not only my experience, but I think the relationship um, and the experience that other people had uh, working on the project. Um, so yeah, I think I think if we want to create media that's different. Um, it takes a lot to challenge and change these kind of um, things. And also to not just assume that um, because things are being done under this independent banner that somehow we're not gonna carry over um, the baggage and the, um, the kind of behavior from past 
um, organizations. And an update on the situation with Sarah Hoyles and Ryan Jesperson. Uh, Sarah announced that she is no longer working with Ryan on the show, um, which quite honestly, good for her. Um, and uh, we wish Sarah all the best when it comes to whatever is next. Yeah, I hope that she's able to find a place that respects her uh, perspective and her ideas um, as a journalist. I want to talk a little bit about a CBC documentary that came out in 2010, um, and it was released by The Fifth Estate, which is kind of an investigative uh, documentary show run by CBC. Um, and the documentary is called The Life and Death of Abdi Nazir Dire. Um, and essentially, it's a story of a young Somali teenager from Toronto who came to Alberta um, to work in the oil sands in Fort McMurray um, and was murdered in a kind of similar fashion to a lot of young Somali men in the 2010s and early 2000s who were murdered um, and their murders went unsolved um, in Alberta. And um, the documentary essentially follows his life before the murder um, and talks um, to his family um, and establishes different connections. Um, but, you know, we quickly see in the documentary that um, there is a constant speculation around him being involved in the drug trade. Um, but also, I'd say like a sensational focus um, on that as something that I think um, provides not only like entertainment, um, but also I think like, uh, yeah, like drives the narrative, gives kind of like the reason for like this reporter to even be, you know, talking to this family um, or, you know, investigating this story generally. Good evening, I'm Gillian Findlay. The young man's name is Abdi Nasser Deary, and these are the streets where he grew up. By all accounts, he should have been a Canadian success story. He was bright, educated, motivated to succeed. But instead, Abdi Nasser Deary is dead. One of dozens of young men from this community who went west looking for opportunity and who never returned. What happened and why are questions that six months later, his family still has no answers to. Tonight, we'll take you inside their story, deep inside a community and a world that most Canadians have never seen before. Like many Somali immigrants, their story begins in violence. In the 1990s, warlords ruled Somalia, and as battles for power intensified, no one was safe. As the fighting spread, parents who could picked up their children and fled. After glossing over um, the kind of quick facts around Somali immigration into Canada, um, we're kind of placed into a um, low-income community in Toronto, and essentially um, the reporter talks to a, a Somali man who's um, moved from Toronto to Fort McMurray to find work. Um, and the, the guy tells the reporter that, um, you know, it's very difficult to find work as a young black person um, in Fort McMurray. Um, and when, when that kind of happens, um, I, I found it very interesting that, um, you know, 
when 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 a, when a statement like that is, is said in an interview, at least from my perspective, I think it elicits the need to follow up, you know, ask more questions to get more understanding. I think it's pretty damning if someone says, you know, I can't find a job because of my race or, you know, it seems like there's open discrimination here um, for our ability to actually find good work. Um, but, you know, that revelation is kind of ignored completely by the journalist. Um, and we continue to focus back very quickly on um, the criminality. Um, and that's kind of the center point. Um, the thesis is um, why are these young Somali men um, involved in the drug trade? How is their involvement in the drug trade an indication of their parents' failure and this division between, um, you know, uh, immigrants who are disconnected from their new Canadian children um, and yeah, I don't think there's really an understanding or even a care to understand um, the uh, the real struggles uh, that these black people face and the reasons, um, the underlying reasons why they're in this situation um, to begin with. Jobs were scarce, especially it seemed if you were young and Somali. When you come here, is all doors locked. You come, you have to, for three to four months, you're going to be hunting for jobs, resumes, everything. But most of the time, every door is shut down. Third Cook isn't a bad gig, but it's a long way from the computer programming career he'd gone to college for. I didn't know that was going to be the case. But the reason is there's always that stereotype that exists. What do you mean the stereotype? Stereotype is if, a, if I call for a job just because I don't have an accent, the woman will be like, okay, yes, the opportunity is still open, come. But when they see me, it's a totally different story. They'll tell me the job has failed. For the kids from Toronto, the reception was always better here at Halima Hassan's kitchen. If the, um, you know, questions were explored more, um, you know, if this reporter asked a follow-up question about this uh, man's inability to find work, um, I think those questions would obviously point towards um, these kind of racist systems that are in place. So I think by not asking those questions and by not following up, you can kind of like divert any kind of narrative away from um, this kind of status quo that's being kept in place. So the documentary continues um, and essentially um, there's more uh, speculation about the murder um, and uh, during the time when they kind of reveal what's what's happened to the family, um, they also have a segment that, um, you know, really does this uh, perfect, I guess, deflection of blame onto the community for how these murders aren't being solved. When people who are part of the community talk about the murder and the fact that it's, you know, still unsolved, um, and they're, when they also talk about the fact that they don't want to cooperate with the police, uh, the journalist is pretty surprised and shocked. And there's a whole segment about um, this idea of snitching um, or, you know, how the community is somehow to blame because, you know, they don't want to cooperate with police and the police need this information. But, um, you know, because of this idea of snitching and its negative um, connotation, um, this is preventing justice from taking place. And yet police seem powerless to stop it. In large part, they said, because the community was unwilling to help. 
What happened when you roll through my hood? Stuff from left to right, nigga. You gonna get it, nigga. That's what it is. In this world, to be a snitch is to make yourself a target, and you don't have to run with gangsters to get the point. It's like practically you're telling on somebody, that's what they're saying, that peer pressure. It doesn't matter how old you are, how old you are. They're afraid for their own lives. For Legitimately afraid? Should yeah. they be afraid? They are. That's the truth. By pushing this narrative forward, um, it completely ignores this historical reality of the relationship between black communities and the police in Canada. Um, you know, we're not we're really going to talk about the fact that, um, you know, black people have been surveilled, have been harassed, have been targeted by the police, which, you know, would create a pretty natural mistrust or a hesitancy to actually, you know, give information um, or put yourself at harm's way, in harm's way in that kind of case. Um, but I think, yeah, it just really um, puts the blame for these um, cases being unsolved um, very neatly on the community and um, really absolves the police for um, their inability to actually do their jobs by just saying, hey, look, we have a community of people who aren't willing to cooperate, um, and that's just basically a case closed. We don't have to look into this deeper. We don't have to ask any more questions. We don't have to understand why these people are in the difficult position that they're in. Um, because, like I said, I think if we did ask those questions, it would unravel um, a much more toxic relationship and one that's rooted in power that's placed in largely um, white people um, who are in these elite positions. The documentary um, continues, and, I, and one of the last scenes that I think kind of really stuck with me um, was when the, the, the reporter who's at the center of this documentary, who's kind of carrying us through the story, um, says that, um, you know, that some people might think that um, Abdi is um, a, a would-be gangster. Um, but, you know, we also have to realize that he's also a son and a brother. Um, and, you know, I think when I heard that from the reporter, I think it really struck me um, for a few reasons. And one of them is kind of how it creates this false dichotomy. Um, and it also attaches this kind of um, label onto someone where, you know, we can kind of look at it between two lenses. This person can be labeled, you know, under the lens of criminality. Um, therefore, that somehow, um, you know, justifies their murder or the situation that they're in. Um, but then also they can be viewed through the lens of the value that they provide to, you know, their family as this um, son or brother um, and how valuable, you know, as a society, we put the family on a pedestal. It's kind of sad that someone's humanity in a situation like Abdi's is only viewed through um, this kind of like binary when in reality um, you know he carries an inherent value that I think we all do when I watch everything that I watched in the documentary I think it really begs a question for me um, about what what point is this documentary trying to make here um, and I think it's kind of confusing um, when I hear about you know all these stories um, from my perspective, I'm trying to understand how society has failed these communities. Um, I want to know how you know we can effectively dismantle all the barriers that are keeping them in this position or that are preventing them from actually achieving um, the kind of good jobs or the kind of security and the kind of quality of life that I think they're entitled to. Um, so 
you know, what we actually get from the documentary is a pretty clinical, distant observation um, that's very dispassionate um, and that gives coverage of the community tragedy that ultimately reinforces, I think, a lot of the um, dehumanizing um, narratives that are already placed onto these communities. So you don't take away any real critique or any real um, insight, I think. But you're kind of left with, I think, more of the status quo, more of these negative perceptions and narratives. Functionally, I think it serves to preserve that status quo um, and also show that there isn't anything that can really be done um, within the community itself that um, could possibly help or even from outside the community that could alleviate this situation. That these people are somehow, you know, endlessly doomed to be, you know, in this cycle of poverty or of um, criminality or any of the other negative narratives that I think are placed or upheld by uh, this kind of coverage. When I see this and then I also see, you know, the coverage that we see uh, at CBC Today, um, it's a little bit difficult because what we see today is coverage like um, CBC series Black on the Prairies, which um, is a series that I think really places forward narratives that, um, you know, celebrate Black life on the prairie, try to, um, I guess, expose positive stories uh, about Black history. CBC also has um, a new tag, I would say, on their website called Being Black in Canada. So this is kind of a tag that's slapped onto, um, you know, any story of uh, black success in Canada. So anything from a story about uh, like a high school kid getting into Juilliard, a prestigious uh, New York music school, um, to uh, a black business um, being successful. So when that's contrasted with um, this documentary, um, which I don't think this is an isolated kind of thing. I think this fits within a broader pattern of coverage um, that we saw before what we're seeing now, I think it's difficult to, I guess, contend with what we have today because I think what we have today is very uncritical of what was done in the past. And I think by not acknowledging what was done in the past and by just papering over it with these success stories, we're not doing what we should have done before, which is, I think, challenging and seriously examining the uh, barriers that, you know, make us have to even platform these success stories um, to make the community, I guess, appear in a positive light um, when, you know, we've had decades and decades of negative coverage. Um, so it doesn't necessarily do the job that I think it should be doing. So yeah, I think without this like critical examination, without acknowledging the past where this actual coverage um, stems from, um, I don't think we're going to see the kind of reform that we need to see um, from the media um, in places like CBC. So February was obviously Black History Month, um, and I've gotten really used to just like tuning out everything because uh, white liberals really have a fondness for pushing benign black narratives down everyone's throat. And, you know, we've seen this uh, and talked about this with things like CBC Black on the Prairies, with uh, being black in Canada. Um, and, you know, these things continue to perpetuate uh, these success stories, these positive spins um, without actually dealing with um, the status quo oppression and narratives that are pushed by the media. 
And true to form for that, um, CBC launched uh, The Block on February 1st, which it claims to be uh, Canada's new home for black music. Um, and host Angeline Tete what oh my god host angeline tete wayo says quote the block is home a place of belonging its community and familiarity it is a reflection of the depth and breadth of black cultural contributions and innovations in music i am so thrilled to be providing a platform to elevate the immense pool of talent in this country that has largely been ignored by traditional terrestrial commercial radio. Hip hop has saved my life, but I have been left gasping for something on the air that represents people who look like me. With this show, we can finally breathe." End quote. So hearing that quote um, definitely brought up a lot of feelings for me, um, mostly feelings around the fact that, um, you know, it sounds incredibly corny um to say that a show has brought breath to you or you know some kind of new revelation about um music and and culture that has always kind of um been happening that has always been cherished but now that cvc has you know decided to prioritize it or even give it you know the 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 platform that the block is going to be um that that has somehow um brought um something radically different i think is like pretty pretty insulting i'd say to um a lot of the work that a lot of black folks have done um but i think also like fits in within this larger narrative and this larger idea of um conforming and um the role that i think media can play for um black um indigenous and um independent kind of um content creators this last part of the quote by angeline um especially stuck with me for how it kind of, I guess, references this line that has been prominent in a lot of Black protests over the years with Eric Garner, um, the line, you know, I can't breathe. Um, and, you know, how it's used in this way to, I guess, maybe maybe imply, but imply in a pretty overt way that um, The Block, this show about Black uh, music in Canada, about hip-hop, um, how that's going to bring breath um, to the black community, um, almost kind of in a way to imply that, um, you know, this show is going to solve or, you know, alleviate or make better um, these problems of uh, police brutality, these problems of poverty, these problems of racism, of oppression. Um, what we've needed and the solution to that is being platformed, being given space, um, for, um, you know, a biracial person to have a hip hop show on a national broadcaster. So pretty, uh, pretty awful, um, I think, uh, implication to use these kind of words. Um, but, you know, I think it fits in within a lot of CBC's coverage um, around black lives and how they approach these issues. Um, and, I was doing some reading recently and came across um, what I think is something that's pretty relevant when it comes to understanding how these narratives fit within a larger picture. So this book called The Fourth Eye, um, Maori Media in Aotearoa, essentially um, the chapter and the reading that I was doing was around the politics of recognition. So recognition specifically when it comes to indigenous media 
or in this case, we could, you know, interchange that with an idea of black media. Um, so the uh, part about uh, recognition begins in this chapter by saying, um, in relation to this chapter, the politics of recognition resemble the politics of appropriation because their central problematic asks this, what is at stake in locating indigenous epistemies within Western frames, whether those frames be Western media technology in terms of appropriation or the rhetoric of colonial compensation in terms of recognition. Um, so I think what it's trying to ask here is, um, you know, what's at stake when we try to take these um, black ideas or indigenous ideas in this case and place them within the Western context. So it continues here with a quote by Dene scholar Glenn Coulthard. Um, and it says here, he neatly outlines the language of recognition that has become central to the interface between indigenous groups and various post-colonial states. Over the last 30 years, the self-determination efforts and objectives of indigenous peoples have increasingly been cast in the language of recognition. Recognition of cultural distinctiveness, recognition of an inherent right to self-government, recognition of state treaty obligations, and so on a process that promises to reproduce the very configurations of colonial power that indigenous demands for recognition have historically sought to transcend. So producing, reproducing the things that we're trying to transcend um, by seeking recognition of um, Western powers. Um, and it continues here, and um, this is kind of the last part I think I'm going to try to read from this passage. The state, whether tacitly or otherwise, fundamentally expects their sovereign governance over all their subjects to remain intact, and thus the terms of recognition produced means the foundation of the colonial relationship remains relatively undisturbed. Indigenous media with radical intent, that is, indigenous media that desires indigenous sovereignty or the disruption of state governance, cannot I suggest, exist within this relationship of mutual recognition. Accordingly, central to one definition of indigenous media is independence of will, the freedom and responsibility to represent oneself. The cost of such a definition would undoubtedly be, as such things stand in New Zealand at least, non-recognition and therefore a lack or loss of state funding. What we see from programs like The Block or Being Black in Canada is an attempt by the Black community to essentially affirm their existence as subjects of the state. And this becomes a very big problem when we already know that the state that we're trying to affirm ourselves to is a colonial state that has really been invested in our own oppression and continuing the status quo for a very long time. Not only that, but I think we really dilute ourselves by seeking for this confirmation um, or for this affirmation from people who, like I said before, um, are have been more interested in our oppression for years um, than trying to find real solutions to the problems that have kept us in this place for so long. So with everything that we've covered in today's episode, we were kind of hoping to make it so that this is a cautionary tale of the pitfalls that can really easily happen with um, independent media coverage, obviously with mainstream media coverage, 
Um, and, you know, we really hope that it serves as something helpful for you when you're trying to decipher, um, you know, what's what's true, but also what's useful um, in terms of analysis. And it's definitely served as a cautionary tale for us as well, um, you know, in our attempts to um, not only challenge ourselves and how we view things and how we cover things on the show, um, but also really understand um, how we've done things in the past um, and how we can evolve and, and, and continue to keep things um, really critical. So with that being said, um, yeah, we appreciate you listening to the show and um, we hope to continue doing this kind of work um, as the season continues.